Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here at The Guardian, we love podcasts. Not only do we make dozens of award winners ourselves, but we also write about our favorite podcasts from around the world too. Every week, our column Here, Here, that's here as in hearing and here as in where, comes out filled with recommendations from you, our listeners. We sift through them all to find the hidden gems that the podcasting world has to offer. These podcasts are often small yet mighty productions, which you probably wouldn't find highlighted on your usual podcatchers. So, if you're looking for your next podcast or have one that you want to share with the world, sign up for our weekly Hear Hear newsletter at theguardian.com forward slash podmail and send us an email at podcasts at theguardian.com. The Guardian. Hello, this is Brexit Means, The Guardian's regular podcast in which we attempt the increasingly difficult, indeed near impossible task of making sense of Brexit so you don't have to. So, it won't have escaped your attention that we're now a month away from the crunch EU summit in Brussels which the bloc has set as the deadline for many of the unresolved withdrawal issues still to be sorted. And it probably won't have escaped your attention either that most of those issues show no sign at present of actually being sorted. So perhaps as a result, things feel like they're starting to get a little bit heated. The EU27, in the shape of a senior official at an off-the-record briefing, but also of Michel Barnier, their chief negotiator, have accused Britain of chasing a fantasy and playing hide-and-seek in the negotiations. London has hit back, calling the EU's approach laughable and insisting it's all just a public stance. There have been other blunt words too from the likes of the UK's former, as in sacked, EU ambassador Ivan Rogers and from the heads of HMRC and the Bank of England. So it's all feeling a little bit antsy, as my gran used to say. Does that matter? With me to discuss all this and to try and figure out where, if anywhere, things are going is our guest, Anand Menon, who's Professor of European Politics at King's College London and Director of the think tank UK in a Changing Europe. And I think it's fair to say one of the most knowledgeable commenters on Brexit in a field that I think it's also fair to say has its fair share of not so knowledgeable commenters. Anand, hello and welcome. Hi, thanks for that welcome, though. You should point out that knowledgeable about Brexit is a very low bar. (laughs) So that is true. That is true. Let's look First, at this language, shall we? Because it was really quite mm-hmm. striking last week. I'm just going to read 
One phrase from a, this senior EU official speaking off the record in a briefing in Brussels and one from Michel Barnier. So this was the EU official. He said, I'm concerned because the precondition for fruitful discussions has to be that the UK accepts the consequences of its own choices. I have the impression that the UK thinks everything has to change on the EU's side so that everything can stay the same for the UK. And then this was Michel Barnier. He was in Portugal at the weekend talking to a conference of lawyers. And he said, we simply ask for clarity. We need realistic proposals from the UK that respect the institutional architecture and integrity of the EU. It is the UK that is leaving the EU. It cannot, on leaving, ask us to change who we are and how we operate. Now, it's that last sentence that I find particularly mm -hmm. striking because it kind of sums up the entire Brexit impasse, doesn't it, really? I mean, how, how do you feel about it? And how, I mean, how can we move on given that kind of, of opposition? It does indeed sum it up. I mean, I'd say a couple of things. Firstly, I'm not going to sit here and defend how the government has approached Brexit because it seems to me, for a variety of reasons, having a divided cabinet, having no majority in parliament, it's very, very hard work for them domestically. And they haven't been as clear on what they want as I think in other domestic circumstances they may have been. But the second thing I would say is this question of the EU changing what it is and what it does is absolutely fundamental because the British argument is this. Look, you've got third-party agreements with all sorts of countries, whether it's Canada, whether it's Norway, whether it's Switzerland. We are closer and bigger and more important to you than all of them. So surely in our case, you should do it differently. And that, I think, is where the argument is hinging at the moment. Mm. So for you, you, you think that Theresa May or the British government needs some help from Brussels for things, things to move forward? Yeah, and I think not unreasonably, the British government is not just saying we need help, but saying both of us, in order to benefit from our relationship, need to be flexible. And, you know, strikingly, I think in every single of her Brexit speeches, Mrs May has used the word creativity. That is to say, look, you've got a rule book, we respect the rule book, but surely in the case of such a close neighbour with such a large economy, with whom you have such a close security partnership, you need to be a little bit pragmatic. Now, as the Brexit has told us time and time again during the EU referendum campaign, if there's one thing that the EU isn't, it's flexible and pragmatic, and we're learning that to our cost now. That is kind of it, isn't it? Yes, we're, we, we say creativity and imagination, and the EU says rules. Yeah, absolutely. And this, this was most striking to me a couple of weeks ago, because if you remember uh, Barnier and uh, Frederica Mogherini had a public event at which they talked about foreign and security policy. Mm. And what struck me and disappointed me, I have to say, is they both started off saying we have a unique relationship. Your security is our security. Our, your, you know, our security mm. is your security. And then, as if on cue, they both seg to saying, however, these are the rules for third parties and we shall not change them. And it struck me as weird because in security, at least, where there's far less law to worry about and far less sort of economic gain to be had, if you like, from punishing us, surely there must be a way that could be found that maximises our ability to cooperate even outside the formal structures. And it seems to me that on principle almost, the EU are saying no. OK, so if then we're looking for a degree of compromise from both sides in order to be able to move forward, I mean, I, I guess the first question is, do you think that degree of compromise is there? Uh, are we heading for a car crash or, or, or will both sides give a little? I see. I assumed you wouldn't ask me to make predictions. <laughs> but uh, who knows is the honest answer. But uh, to fill the airtime, let me say my hunch is that June will be ugly. 
and that to an extent it certainly suits the British government to have a fight. And remember, these EU negotiations, whatever they're on, whether they're on the budget, whether they're on treaty change, always go to the wire. And the wire is actually late autumn not June. We've got this deadline now in June, sure, but it's it's not firm in the sense that if we miss June, nothing terrible happens. So my suspicion is that we might be setting ourselves up for a fight and a showdown in June with tempers cooling, positions being reassessed over the summer with a view to coming back in October to try again. Some kind of deal. Okay. All right. Then in that case, the question is what kind of deal might actually be achievable and things might get a little bit technical here but it's kind of important I think that we see where we are heading it feels firstly slightly absurd that we're discussing this two years after the referendum but still so Ivan Rogers who uh, I mentioned just at the beginning there gave a speech in Glasgow last week um, very long speech a very long speech a very brilliant speech in many ways um, but after he'd laid into what he called the, the the buccaneering blather of the Brexiteers and stressed many t- several times that you know that there were no perfect choices and that serious trade-offs will have to be made between sovereignty and market access etc he did, he seemed to have a, a an idea which at least sounds like something that might be a possibility at the end of the road he said he said he thought the future deal might look like something like quasi single market membership paying something for it living under the jurisprudence of the european court of justice and jurisdiction in goods but disapplying free movement of people does mm-hmm. that sound plausible to you? Well, let me say a couple of things. One, just out of interest, a lot of his criticism, ironically enough, Mm. was very similar to the criticism leveled by Dominic Cummings, the architect of the Leave campaign, on I think the same day in a blog. So the government is being attacked from both sides in a similar way, which is interesting. But on on what Ivan said in terms of the detail, firstly, it's interesting to note that this this model has now got an acronym, which sadly enough is crap. Yes, yes. to do continued regulatory alignment. I don't share this view, I have to say. A lot of people, and you're right, this gets a bit technical, a lot of people looked at what the government did over the course of the last week when the government started talking in terms of the whole of the UK aligning itself with EU rules and staying within the customs union as a way of solving the Irish question and said, wow, this is the direction the government's going in. My sense about that initiative was it was purely tactical. Uh, and, and the reason why I say that, apart from anything else, is that there was absolutely no pushback from the Brexiters, who mm. will hate this idea, which made me think immediately, hang on, there's a plan. And I think what the government is trying to do is to nudge the EU to be more flexible around its supposed red lines of the indivisibility of the single market. I do not for a moment think that this government and this Conservative Party is easily going to accept continued indefinite alignment with EU rules under the European Court of Justice because it breaches too many of their red lines. And remember what the local government elections told us was 70% of the Tory electorate are now Brexiters. So politically, I think that's not going to happen. Yeah. A lot of people will say, well, the EU is simply defending its own interests Mm -hmm. here. Do you think the EU has an interest, in fact, in developing what might eventually turn into a, a, you know, some kind of sort of associate membership model that might also be applied to, who knows, to, to other countries in the future? I'm still struck by the degree to which in Brussels this notion of making it clear 
that membership is far better than non-membership dominates everything. There is still this fear that actually Britain might become an example to others. We've seen what's going on in Italy at the moment. Now, that strikes me as an absurd fear because I don't see any other member state queuing up to leave the EU at the moment. What you've seen is support for membership hardening has, has across all of the yeah. member states. So actually, I think the EU are in a stronger position. They seem to believe they're in. I suspect that down the line, maybe in 10 years, maybe in 15 years, yes, we'll be able to talk about association. But both sides, if you like, are stuck in ruts at the moment, which makes that kind of flexibility very, very hard to foresee. And that's what the British government is trying to tease out. I don't know how much detail you want to go in about this with this so-called backstop for the yes, whole of no, the UK. Go, go there. Let's, let's, go to, <laughs> let's go to the backstop agreement. So if you remember back in December when we signed the uh, draft withdrawal agreement with the European Union, mm. in there was the famous f- paragraph 49 that said, in the event that we don't find a solution, Northern Ireland will remain within those bits of the single market it needs to remain in for the Good Friday Agreement and the All-Ireland Economy and remain in the customs union. Okay, And in a sense, what the EU was saying there was Northern Ireland, you can cherry pick a little bit because the issues at stake are so big. There's a, there's a, there's a question of violence. There's the interests mm. of our member states. The, the Good Republic Friday Agreement. Yeah. And crucially, Northern Ireland is small. So we will tolerate exceptions for a small country like we do for Andorra, like we do for Liechtenstein and so on. What the British government last week said was, hey, we've got an idea. How about you make that backstop apply to the whole of the United Kingdom, right? So therefore saying, if you're letting Northern Ireland cherry pick, why don't you let us cherry pick too? Now, this is slightly embarrassing for the EU because, of course, they've held up the no cherry picking as a matter of high principle. What the British approach suggests, rightly, is that it's not a matter of high principle. It's partly a matter of interest too. We'll make concessions to Northern Ireland, but not to the whole of the United Kingdom. And what the government are trying to do, if you like, is is reveal what they see as the hypocrisies of the, of, of the EU. You'll make exceptions for Northern Ireland. Why not for us? And if you're willing to make exceptions for us, then let's negotiate. We have the basis for proper negotiation. And that is what the EU doesn't want. Mm. OK, let's talk a little bit about the... I mean, I know you're a professor of European politics, but I'd like to oh, talk a little bit about the domestic politics of, of, of this. Mm-hmm. Because they too are starting to get really quite heated yep. uh, now, aren't they? Um, you know, it's very notable, the likes of Jacob Rees-Mogg uh, over the weekend insisting that Theresa May has to revive her no-deal threat mm-hmm. to Brussels. And today he was on on the radio this morning saying that failing to prepare for a no-deal Brexit would be both incompetent and weak. Boris Johnson, of course, Foreign Secretary, stressing again that the UK has to come fully out of the customs union, otherwise they'll be all held to pay. Uh, I mean, they're not going to let go, are they? I mean, how, how far will they push it and how much power do they actually have? Well, I think Jacob Rees-Mogg has a point in the sense that I'd always prefer to see us doing contingency planning rather than not. But one of the things the referendum taught us was that government doesn't do contingencies anymore. We don't plan for all eventualities, which I think could be potentially dangerous. But And he's right in the sense that the less we plan for no deal, the less credibly we can threaten it as an outcome. Okay, because the costs for us rise. In fact, it seems to me that the only country that is taking practical steps to prepare for Brexit are the Netherlands, who've invested money and hired staff to deal with... They're actually hiring customs officers. ...port of Rotterdam. So actually no one's preparing for the Calais isn't preparing, which is bizarre. And it seems to imply this kind of faith that something will turn up, we'll sort this out somehow. So in that sense, they're right. I think where they're absolutely wrong is in suggesting that no deal is something that we should seriously think about as something we choose. Because the consequences of no deal, and by by this I don't just mean 
no trade deal. I mean, no Article 50 deal. Yeah. So we leave with no, nothing. No withdrawal agreement. Yeah. Yeah. No. The legal basis on which we trade with our European partners will be thrown up in the air. It is absolutely the case that airlines will have to think twice about flying because the legal framework under which they do so will be completely, utterly ambiguous. No. no deal is bad for everyone. And I think suggesting otherwise is at best is disingenuous. Hmm. Okay. And politically... How much clout do they hold? Well, politically, you've got several things going on, and it, and, it, and it makes the whole situation very, very messy. Firstly, of course, most senior Tories who speak out on this issue quite conceivably have leadership ambitions because everyone knows <laughs> that what we have is a caretaker prime minister. I don't think there's, any, there's many people in the Parliamentary Conservative Party who are seriously considering allowing Theresa May to lead them into the next election. So there's all that manoeuvring going on. And then there's the absence of a parliamentary majority as well. Both sides are trying to shore up their numbers, the Brexiters and, if you like, the, it would be unfair to call them non-Brexiters, the soft Brexiters in the Conservative Party. So partly those two sides are engaging in a trial of strength as well. So everyone's showing off to everyone. And what we really don't know, for instance, is when the amendment on the customs union comes back to Parliament, what the numbers will be. It is spectacularly unclear. And so because of that, there's a lot of posturing going on, which makes the whole thing very, very hard to read. Okay, that was the political headaches. What about the practical sort of stroke economic warnings? Because again, last I mean, a lot happened last week. We had two very significant voices last week warning about the economic consequences. Mm -hmm. Firstly, John Thompson, the head of the HMRC, uh, saying that this sort of high tech max fac post Brexit customs model that the, that the Brexiters want, that Johnson and Liam Fox and Michael Gove all favour, was, you know, cost, end up costing business something like 20 billion quid a year. And Eurotunnel, similarly, warning of delays and what they called kind of, kind of serious economic costs if the government adopts, in fact, either mm -hmm. of the two customs models that it's considering, which, both of which, of course, have already been kind of rejected by the EU. How do you think that's going to play into the debate as we as we move on into the summer? I mean, I, I know a lot of Brexit voters may choose to ignore that, really, but the government can't ignore that kind of warning, can it? I mean, also Mark Carney, you know, the, the, mm -hmm. the head of the bank, boss of the Bank of England, saying uh, you know it's already cost nine hundred quid, and, and, and the economy is two two percent smaller than it would have been. Uh, I mean, those those are warnings that can't just be pushed under the carpet, can they? Well, they have been pushed under the carpet, so they can. But what I'd say, I think I'd say two things to this. Firstly, we're storing up governance problems for ourselves, because ever since that day during the campaign where Ian Duncan Smith said, well, basically, the Treasury is an institution that lies all the time. We've seen this site of senior politicians abusing some of the key institutions of the British state. And I don't think that bodes well for us down the line, because ultimately, we depend on those institutions to do our economic planning. And if politicians themselves are casting doubt on their competence or their neutrality, I think that's very, very dangerous. On the substance, there isn't a serious piece of economic analysis that doesn't suggest that leaving the customs union and the single market would be costly. And the reason is absolutely crystal clear, isn't it? We are making trade with our closest and biggest trading partner harder, whether it's by putting in place customs checks, whether it's by having rules of origin checks, whether it's by having divergent rules, which means that the EU will have to check our products to see if they comply with their regulations. It makes trading harder. Therefore, it's not rocket science to think if it's harder, there might be less of it. And if there's less of it, it has a we'll domestic economic off. cost. And remember those, those leaked Treasury estimates about the cost, which basically said, 
our economy might be 5% smaller than it otherwise would be in the event that we sign a free trade association uh, agreement mm. with the EU. They fell sort of towards the lower end of the range of forecasts we've seen. So they weren't being extreme. They were simply saying, if we are going to make trade harder, there'll be less of it, and that will come at a price. Now, that's not to say people might not think that's a price worth paying, but I think it's, again, disingenuous to say we can leave and nothing will change because that simply can't be the case. I mean, there's been a lot of – there's been disingenuousness from a lot of people. Absolutely, uh, on both Throughout this whole, this, this whole process. And, and the government is clearly up against it in terms of defining what it wants and then trying to get it. It's clearly a learning process for a lot of people. Do you think that we as a country have learned from the Brexit process? First and foremost, and perhaps most ironically, I think Brexit is teaching us what EU membership means, slightly belatedly maybe, but we're learning about the rights and obligations of membership all of a sudden. Uh, And I think, you know, British citizens living abroad will learn about those very quickly as well when they lose those rights. But yeah, we're learning about ourselves. I mean, I don't think many people in Britain understood the subtlety of the Northern Ireland constitutional settlement before we started this process. I remember about a year ago, a colleague of mine, Alan Rennick at UCL, organised a citizens' assembly on Brexit where we got a representative group of citizens together to discuss what they wanted from the Brexit process. And I had to laugh at one point where this elderly lady from Wigan put her hand up and said, can you explain this Henry VIII stuff in Parliament to me? Because it seems really worrying. And it just dawned on me then that all these kind of technical aspects of the way we're governed are suddenly things that people are hearing about for the first time. So we're we're learning more about ourselves and our system, which I think on balance is a good thing. It's probably a good thing. All right, um, let's move... I get towards as we're sort of moving towards the end here, but I'd like to switch away from you know the sort of hardcore Brexit issues. I know, I mean that the might football. be sacrilegious, not quite as far as that. Um, but I'm just wondering. I mean, two events uh, in or events in two EU member states uh, over the past week uh, that might or might not be relevant. Firstly, Ireland and its its referendum on reforming its abortion law. Now that. Obviously, the, 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 the subject of the referendum was clearly completely unrelated. But the point here, I suppose, is that it, you know, it was a referendum. And there's been a lot of talk, particularly among Remainers in the UK, about you know, what, a, what a disastrous decision it was to hold a referendum mm-hmm. on, on the subject of Brexit here and how badly it was managed, etc. And there were a lot of pro-Brexit people out over the weekend on, on social media, essentially saying to liberal Remainers who were delighted with, with this Irish Aha, okay, so so referendums are fine when you like the result, but not when you don't. I mean, any thoughts on that? Are there sensible comparisons to be drawn between those two referendums? Meaningful comparisons? My immediate thought is it just underlines the degree to which Brexit is all-consuming in this country, is we're incapable of seeing anything happen anywhere else without viewing it through a Brexit lens, and usually, as a result, distorting it through a Brexit lens. Yes, There was a referendum there, and there are some parallels to be drawn, maybe, but it was a referendum on a very different sort of issue. And and on a very clearly defined defined outcome. Is that the key difference? A a clearly defined outcome that was within the gift of the Irish government as well. I think that's fundamental. I mean, one of the reasons we couldn't have had the same sort of debate here is the outcome of Brexit doesn't just depend on our government. It depends on the EU as well. We don't control it. So that means you can't promise something 
unless you know the EU is willing to give it. And of course, the EU refused to talk about it until we triggered Article 50. So I think there are limits to the parallels we can draw. Also, the question in terms of the process as well, I think, which might be worth pointing mm-hmm. out, the fact that, you know, Ireland had this, you know, they had, there, was a, there was this sort of whole citizens' assembly yep. where a representative cross-section of the population discussed mm-hmm. and debated the issue and made their recommendations and there were parliament. I mean, essentially, it seems to me, the, the big difference is basically that, that, that Ireland had its debate before mm-hmm. it held its referendum. And in Britain, we're having the debate after we held it. Well, yes and no. I mean, one of the things I'd say is turnout here was 10 percentage points higher than it was in Ireland. So it's not as if the population weren't mobilised here. And yes, their, their, their process, I think, was admirable the way they did it. I wonder, and I think citizens' assemblies are a great device for figuring out what people think when they're informed about the issues and allowing them to talk things through in a calm and measured manner with each other. I wonder how possible that would have been with something as massive as Brexit before. It's massive, it's complex and indeterminate. So I think it would have been far, far harder to do effectively. I mean, what what I think is indisputably true is it would have been nice if in this country we'd had a more sustained and informed debate about what EU membership meant from the moment we joined. I'm not for a moment suggesting that knowing more more about the EU makes you a fan of it, because in many cases, quite the contrary. All I'm saying is, in general, as a principle, the more people know about how we're governed, the better, and the more people know about decisions they're being asked to make, the better. But maybe that's a vain hope. I mean, I remember very, very clearly in the run-up to the 2017 election, Nick Robinson did a series of focus groups from Halifax, I Mm. think. And I was very struck about two weeks before the election, he asked these people, so you've heard this phrase, strong and stable. What do you think it means? And of course, we would, by that stage, broke out into a rash whenever we (laughs) heard strong and stable. We were so fed up of it. No one around the table had heard it. And I just thought that was absolutely staggering yeah. and was a really nice insight into the gap between the people who make a living from talking about politics all the time and normal people yeah. who spend very, very little time on it. So I think, you know, high levels of education on all issues is something of a vague, vain hope, not least because people have got better things to do with their lives. Mm. Politics ain't everything. Yeah. Absolutely. OK, final question then. Italy, where you know, the sort of putative new Populist mm-hmm. government has collapsed before mm-hmm. it was even installed. Fresh elections now look more or less certain, probably in the autumn. I mean, it, you know, it's a it's a mess. Europe and the, certainly the markets are worried by the uncertainty of it all and by the prospect of a of a you know Eurosceptic government mm-hmm. uh, essentially sort of storming back with an even bigger majority. Are they right to be worried? And I note also that there was a five star MEP who said. This week that, you know, the party would make sure Britain got a good deal. Mm -hmm. How's that going to play out? Could it have any conceivable impact on Brexit? How is that going to play out? Who knows? (laughs) Great question. Well, I would say several things. I mean, firstly, this underlines for me the real dangers of things spiralling out of control. You've got two populist parties who have been, let's just say, irresponsible in their use of rhetoric. Neither of them is obviously committed to taking Italy out of the euro. But the danger now is that the the new election, if and when it is held, effectively becomes a plebiscite on euro membership. So it unleashes, to use the phrase uh, I think uh, Craig Oliver, uh, David Cameron's advisor, used, it unleashes demons. And Italy is in the process of unleashing demons. So these these processes where you have popular votes and populist parties are very, very unpredictable. So, yes, the markets are right to be worried. I don't think amongst Italy's political class there is a serious demand to leave the euro. I think There might not well be either uh, among voters. I mean, I think it's probably fair to say that one of the reasons Marine Le Pen 
failed in the yep. in the French presidential elections was precisely her promise, her party's promise to take France or consider taking France out. I mean, ordinary voters look at that and they look at they see what's happened to Greece and they kind of look at the prospect of their of their of their savings melting away to nothing. And that's that that's that kind of insecurity is not something they're going to actively vote for. Yeah, and I think even from the introduction of the euro, these people realise that changing currency is a big deal. It leads to price instability. Prices changed overnight in many countries usually upwards, uh, courtesy of retailers. Uh, People don't want that sort of uncertainty around money and something as simple as that, which goes back to something we were talking about earlier. I mean, it gives the lie to this notion that people are queuing up to leave the EU, because if you think Brexit is difficult and complicated, imagine doing Brexit as a member of the euro, which would be a total nightmare. Mm. Absolutely. All right. Well, on that note, we shall end it. That's about all we have time for, I'm afraid. Thank you very much, Anand, for joining us. Hope we can entice you back again sometime. Please do subscribe, review on all your favourite podcatchers. Join the discussion on Twitter. You just need to search for Guardian Podcasts. If you want to get in touch with us, it's Brexit Podcast. That's all one word, Brexit Podcast at theguardian.com. Till next week, I'm John Henley. The producer was Simon Barnard. This was Brexit Memes, and thank you very much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 